Hi, you're listening to The Get, the podcast about finding and keeping great marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. I'm Erica Seidel, your host. On The Get, I talk to a lot of awesome marketing leaders, but my guest today is actually not a CMO. Instead, he plays the role of a talent whisperer for CEOs who are hiring CMOs. Brian West is the head of talent at Resurgence Technology Partners, a private equity firm investing in enterprise software companies in scaling mode. If you're a CMO looking to work in a private equity-backed business or a hiring leader in a PE-backed company, you could come across someone in a role like Brian's. You'll learn about the role of the PE talent partner in recruiting CMOs. You'll hear about the soft skills framework Brian uses to vet candidates. In particular, listen for his definition of agility, not just being adaptable, but being proactively adaptable. We unpack the difference between a candidate who can go into a new situation and figure it out versus a candidate who has a plan of attack. We discuss whether prior experience with scaling is or is not the best predictor of future scaling success. And we talk about failure. We all know it's important to have a failure story, but what if you have more than one? Is there a sweet spot of failure? Brian has had quite a career. He was a fly fishing guide. He spent several years in the U.S. Marine Corps and later McKinsey. Then he was with the leadership advisory firm GH Smart before joining Resurgence. He also has a great radio voice. Let's get started. So welcome, Brian, to the show. Thanks for being here. That's a really high bar. I thought about making a joke voice uh, there just to crush your hopes and dreams on the radio voice. Um, look, I've been uh, looking forward. I look forward to every conversation I have with you, Erica. So looking forward to diving in here. Well, great. Super. Can you talk first about the role of the talent partner in PE and how you interact with CEOs and candidates? Because what I'm seeing is, you know, more and more PE companies are kind of cropping up and investing in software companies. And then as those software companies look to bring on a new marketing leader, you have that CMO candidate who's not just interviewing with the head of sales and the CEO and the team that they'll manage, but they're interviewing with somebody like you and then other people that work, you know, with you more on the on the investment side as as well. But can you talk about that and like the, the value you provide at the end of the day to that process? Well, I'll, tr- I'll, I'll do my best on the latter, uh, but I'll talk a lot about things I do and maybe they will figure out if there's an ROI to it on the back end. <laughs> um, so first, actually, I'll not to provide like too deep of a history lesson, but the talent partner role with any investor group to include venture firms or things of the like, it's a relatively new thing. Um, or the, the history of investor groups and private equity firms is, you know, originally it was uh, let's flash back 20, 25 years ago and a pre, you know, the history of private equity predates that, but the operating model started evolving about, about 20, 25 years ago, where, uh, originally it was, Hey, let's go buy a business. I'm going to oversimplify, do a lot of financial engineering and then hold it for a few years and sell it for a quote unquote profit. Uh, and then return that money back to the investors that had given them money. Then the next horizon was, well, is there something we can do to help these companies we invest in along the way? to kind of increase, you know, juice our returns, so to speak, increase, you know, improve their performance along the way. So that then bore out portfolio operations, support teams. And frankly, there's a whole lot of different versions of that out there still today. And then the final, or currently the next frontier that's really been tapped into pretty materially over the last 
really three to five years is having someone dedicated or some group dedicated to maximizing the quote unquote value creation through the talent lens, i.e. have somebody that's actually thinking about talent and ROI all the time as owned by the investor group. Now, these roles, though, it's funny, I, I'm really well connected with a lot of uh, people in similar roles. Boy, they all take different, uh, they take form in different ways. There's former recruiters who step in where the primary function that role plays is to help turn on the talent acquisition, you know, uh, machine, if you will, across the, across the respective portfolio. There's former CHROs that take the role and just kind of basically make uh, the, the function become a, a shared service for anything and everything when it comes to HR. And then there's folks kind of like me who are former talent advisors and CEO coaches and or leadership coaches. So, you know, that archetype of which there's a number of us out in market and, you know, the good, the good news is, again, we get to, we get to share our uh, misery and, and good cocktail hours here or there. Our role really is to help translate with a CEO and of course our colleagues, which is in effect the board for an investment. Our role is to help translate whatever that strategy is for a business into a clear set of priorities for the business to go execute and help that inform what the org structure and key roles should be. Like, what are the capabilities that we need to confidently deliver on our growth plans? And by the way, fortunately, I work at a private equity group that all we do is buy small companies and try to grow them and make it bigger. I don't play the other game. With that lens, though, it becomes kind of a nonstop. Of course, it's early on, it's pretty heavy, but it becomes a nonstop problem-solving game. Uh, and strategic game of, hey, what are the capabilities you need for tomorrow? What are the capabilities you need for several years from now? And what are we willing to invest in? What do we need to invest in now? And that conversation with the board and with with the CEOs directly becomes a pretty dynamic one because you could kind of keep it very academic and talk about capabilities and whatnot. But at the end of the day, these are human beings uh, and that we're all a little imperfect in how you engage one another and how you actually help elevate the performance of an individual early and ongoing in their, in their time in that seat and in their career, it's, it's a pretty dynamic ongoing conversation. And I kind of play that, I'm kind of the grease in that conversation, often between the CEO and the board and the CEO and their team, because I just want to make sure that anything and everything we can do to elevate the performance of people in the seats to whatever degree their capability kind of ceiling is, we're getting the most out of them that we possibly can both for our benefit, candidly, yes, we are selfish, big, bad, private equity people, uh, but also for theirs. Look, growth is fun. Good performing is fun. Let's let's all go and have a little bit of fun while we do really hard things. Yeah, and in my experience recruiting, there's often a CEO and maybe that CEO has not hired a ton of marketing leaders before mm-hmm. or maybe ever, you know, depending, like maybe they're the founder. It can be very helpful to have somebody who has this muscle developed every day, like you, who can say like, okay, you know, here's how you prioritize this. Here's how to pay attention to the the signal and not the noise and not get so emotionally wrapped up in it because that can happen a lot. It can happen a lot. And to your point, founders and particularly understandably so, by the way, I mean, goodness, the empathy you develop for founders at a firm like ours is pretty real. I mean, you're Number one, we are often convincing them to sell us a majority stake of their business. And it's often their, their baby, <laughs> you know, their, their yeah. third, their, if they've got two kids, this is their third kid. Um, if, and sometimes the, the company is actually at the top of the list. So that the, the attachment they have to what they know and what they know to be true based on their own personal experience is often really high. When it comes to 
marketing leaders though, and the marketing capability overall, you're, you're, you're dead on. I mean, there often are pretty material challenges to navigate in helping either a founder or a CEO. When I, the, the difference, obviously often those are the same human beings sometimes, uh, and often though founders do transition out of the CEO seat on this next wave of growth that our businesses go through. But one is just simply understanding what role marketing can play and should play in value creation. Fortunately, this is this is evolving and kind of, I would say, has evolved in software businesses because the pattern recognition of seeing how value is created in software businesses over time has become pretty clear in that, hey, marketing is going to help you actually drive demand, you know, drive revenue, again, at a high level. The problem is, is a lot of CEOs don't fully understand tactically how that comes to bear. So they don't have the competence to manage or lead it that well. So they just kind of put it over to the side and go lean in on the things they do know. But even for CEOs that have worked along a great have worked alongside a great marketing leader, though, it's not often that that function that has needed to strongly express more than one like axis of marketing, if you will. And again, you're probably going to have better terminology on this than I would. And you've also seen this in some of our partnerships already, just in working with each other. You know, the the scorecard, so to speak, for marketing leader A and company number one that you we partnered on, pretty doggone different. Then mm-hmm. the scorecard, even though these are two software businesses, what skill set needed to get expressed and leveraged the most was quite different uh, across both of those. And CEOs often don't have, or you really, and this is true of the leaders alongside the, the marketing leaders as well, like the peer level, they've only seen one skill set expressed materially. They've never mm-hmm. seen more than one. So that becomes a challenge because the CEOs often, again, just don't know how to actually think about it and manage it if unless it's something they've seen before. The most a non-commercial background CEO can really coach a marketing leader on is like kind of the interpersonal leadership skills and how better to present a business case. And to be sure, those are absolutely essential and critical skills. But if the marketing leader's broader toolkit is not refined and some of it needs to get tapped into or elevated further, the CEO needs to figure out a way to solve that and help that. And that's part of the, and by the way, that's kind of some of the role I come in, not, not to coach them on the skill set, but to help solve for how do we find, how do we find a way to elevate that skill and or develop that skill further? So it, it can become an interesting dynamic. Again, if the, if the CEO just has simply little exposure to it in the first place, or at least the full breadth of what marketing can do for you. And I often feel like in a search, what the CEO is really looking for beyond the scorecard that you're inevitably going to have is just like the marketing leader that they can feel comfortable admitting that they don't know it all and the marketing leader that they want to learn from. And that's it. So like the CMO, you know, that gets the job is the one that is is the best at being that that kind of Sherpa or that kind of, you know, coach for the for the CEO. I'm curious, like, so you're seeing people grapple with questions behind the scenes when they're hiring. Yeah. marketing leaders and other, you know, roles, of, of course. Is there a particular question or questions that come up, those behind the scenes questions when, when there's a, a, a tough hiring um, situation going on? Yeah, that's a good lens to, to reflect on because I, I would say, yes, there are some common themes. That said, I mean, it's funny. Some of them are just bespoke to, to personalities. And by the way, that, that's shame on us, you know, <laughs> in a way, because I, I often say, hey, at the end of the day, we can, we can find a way to make it work. Let's just latch on to where we, what, again, what are the capabilities we need and can we get aligned with this individual and build, a, build an effective working relationship with them? I don't need everybody to be exactly the same type of human being. The main questions I see folks wrestle with 
and maybe a little a touch more context on the types of businesses that we invest in will be helpful here. Again, we're investing in $10 million businesses and trying to get them to 50 at a high level, both through organic growth and inorganic growth, i.e. M&A. The best set of data in crude terms that we at the investor side, and of course, we typically are working alongside a founder and or a CEO to help make these decisions on who to hire as well. But the best set of data that you can get to help drive conviction is past performance data that is exactly extremely analogous or a dead on match to what this needs to happen in this next chapter of growth in the business today. Of course, it is exceedingly rare, not impossible, but is it exceedingly rare that you find that exact perfect set of data? So you have to find yourself making a few leaps of faith here and there. And that's totally normal in any hiring practice, but particularly candidly at our end of the market. Why? Because when you're going from 10 to 50, often like your best leaders, they are very often, not always, again, those, t- those people who've gone from 10 to 50, if they're ambitious and driven, often they want to go do the bigger thing and they go off to go do the next 50 to 100 march. So that right. 10 to 50 is often a first time leader every time, either stepping into the seat for the first time or stepping down from a bigger business, you know, as a number two role, coming down to a $10 million business and running it. The struggle with the decision is, can this person balance the need of executing and being really hands-on and building for scale and kind of being strategic enough and and disciplined enough to build for scale as they add on to their team over time. Finding that data, if it's not obviously right there or finding analogous data in crude terms throughout the interview process can be a struggle because it's not, it becomes an imperfect science. Look, hiring is a subjective exercise. You just got to kind of apply a lot of lenses to it to make it as objective as possible. Yeah, it seems like a lot of my searches, that's what companies want. It's the, the, the somebody who has done that climb before, that 10 yeah. to 50 or 50 to 200 or, or, you know, whatever it is. And so you're right. There's that interest in the been there, done that. That prior scaling experience, is that really the best indication of future successful climbs? Because it seems like there's so many things that can come into play. Like maybe you were successful because the market was growing or because the culture was a great fit or you had a great boss or, you know, a great team under you or what, what, whatever. And I can see how that increases hiring confidence to have yeah. somebody who, you know, has kind of been successful in any kind of context growing and scaling a business. But is it really? Look, at, at the end of the day, this is actually true of any hiring exercise, but particularly investors, we're making bets. And then we do everything we can to maximize the creation of value, but also critically, critically mitigate the risks on the downside. And risk is everywhere, uh, you know, to be sure. So, it, so too is opportunity. And as much as I love finding the best in people and candidates that I connect with and find reasons to say yes to someone, the statistical best predictor of future performance and behavior is still past performance and behavior. It's not perfect, but it's still the best. Doesn't mean the only but it's still the best. And it's just the one that folks can latch on to the easiest. So the best case scenario is finding somewhere that, it, that finding someone that's been there, done that. But as I shared earlier, that's not, you can't always assume you're going to be able to find that. And that's not just for the psychological comfort of it, by the way. It is also in knowing that the individual would show up and be effective by tapping not just their intellect and base of skills, but the pattern recognition. I mean, that, that equals speed. And guess what? We're also in a game of moving pretty quick. And there is something very real to that because scaling is hard. And again, at our end of the market, some of this is a little bit bespoke to us in our operating model, but going from 10 to 20 to 30 
it requires some athleticism. I mean, it requires some dynamism in the role. I mean, these leaders will have quite lean teams early on, so they'll need to be doing some of that doing themselves in the early stages. That can lend to some execution risk, no surprise. And again, if they've seen the movie before, it makes them all the more effective in how they allocate their time and advocate for further resources. Those are lenses that bosses, you know, CEOs and boards just love. Why? Because, okay, you know, we're, we're all about advocating and making, making further bets and making further investments. It sure is helpful when somebody can articulate exactly what, you know, what they've seen before, what they can do and what the payoff would be. That helps everybody kind of see the movie and bring folks along in that vision. And frankly, marketing leaders candidly are really good at that. At least the good ones are, uh, because they can help paint that picture of what exactly this, how exactly this is going to play out. So you had, I remember, a framework for hiring for potential that you, you know, we were doing the search and you were evaluating candidates and you, and you kind of like ran through all these um, <laughs> like lovely soft skills that you were looking at. Can you review that? Yeah. So potential, to be sure, is one thing that we're looking for. And, and it's uh, we do, of course, look for hard evidence of things they've done before that are analogous to what they're what we're asking them to do in the future. Park that to the side because you've already heard me say we gotta we're gonna have to take leaps of faith here and there. Yeah. So the best way for us to fill in those leaps of faith are on what are the markers for potential this person has. I break potential down into four categories. And by the way, this is not fully nothing in my brain is fully organic to me or you know originated by me. I'm informed by my own background and experience set. Some of this some of this I pull from the GH my GH Smart days my uh, days as an advisor. But there's four kind of four categories. First and foremost, cognitive quotient or just smart. And, and like I recognize that's that's an overly simplistic thing, but it's not just is this person book smart? Is this person really savvy or quick in a room? It's things like are they proactive in identifying opportunities and risks that the st- that the regular person or regular candidate just wouldn't? Are they thinking of things their boss should be thinking about one and two years down the line? Are they thinking about the organizational impact of one of their initiatives before they even bring it to the, to the table? That's one. Two is drive. And drive doesn't need all that much explanation. And to be sure, drive is not just somebody who has sharp elbows and is willing to advocate for themselves just for their own career advancement. It's drive so they can pull people along with them and drive so they can actually advocate for a course forward. And again, you can absolutely look for these in the interview processors in quote the in crude terms, the data collection process. Third is relationship quotient. Think of that as a more robust version of EQ. And that is, can you relate to others? Can you understand others' motivations? Can you navigate team and organizational dynamics to ultimately advance your agenda? Can you compromise your agenda and still achieve the organizational goals and understand, uh, like, understand what those trade-offs are and help others achieve theirs? That's that part. Again, those are things you can really test for. Then that fourth category is agility. And agility certainly is a pretty popular, or it has grown in popularity in recent years. It, it, as a result, has been defined probably 10 different ways over the last five or 10 years. The way I've simplified is it's being much more proactively adaptable. Often you hear folks say, well, that person is really adaptable or that candidate is really adaptable. Like, hey, over time, they're going to settle in and adapt to the situation and it, it eventually becomes successful. Agile is proactively identifying how do I need to evolve my formula for success to be successful in this environment, in this context, so that when they come in, they're not just figuring it out. 
they've already started to think, what are the things that I need to tweak in my own approach before even step in that situation to be successful? And again, the markers you look for there in the interview process is whatever that person, you know, across their varied types of roles in their career, have they been successful in different types of environments over time? If the answer is yes, odds are they're pretty doggone agile. Odds are they didn't just kind of like figure it out over time. It's they are actually figuring out they need to be proactively adaptable uh, right out of the gate. I love that. I love this idea of not just adaptable, but proactively adaptable and not just, you know, I'll figure it out, but I'll have a plan of attack. But it's also like, yeah, I've seen some people come in and they're like, oh, I have a, I have a playbook for all of this. And yeah. I think that that can kind of go overboard too far, you know, in the oh, like, oh, I'm going to just smoosh this, this same playbook on this, on a, you know, on a company. So I think what a candidate needs to do is, is kind of have the playbook, but see where it needs to be adapted. And, um, you know, I had this other guest on the show who was very interesting who talked about being like a Sherpa where, okay, so you're a Sherpa, you've climbed the mountain before, but never with the same, uh, you know, clients and never, you know, following the exact kind of path up the mountain and never in the same exact weather conditions. But, you know, you have enough pattern recognition to put it all together. I love that. That's absolutely dead on. And it's, and it applies to both the, in simple terms, the functional toolkit playbook, if you will, mm -hmm. and just truly how to, how to engage others and, and influence and be effective in a certain working uh, group of human beings. Again, so again, the best candidates that I've ever, you know, that we interact with and the ones that really start to, uh, we really kind of get uh, a magnetism starts is when they start asking us all kinds of questions around what's the playbook or what, you know, not just what's in, in place today from a functional lens and a capability lens in the business, but how do things get done today? Because we need that individual to come in and not just install a marketing playbook. We need that person to come in, uh, of course, tailor the playbook to what it needs to get done in the future, but they also have to be effective in term, uh, within the, the working norms of that business and help evolve them in a constructive way pretty quickly. And to do that, that means you got to be, again, you have to be proactively thinking about this right out of the gate before you step into the role, not just, I'll go in and figure it out. So let me pick up on that because I'm wondering what are the most impressive things you've seen candidates do? So you've just mentioned one thing. Yeah. But can you talk more about the candidates that have really stuck out in your mind? Because if you're like me, you know, you interview thousands of people. Yeah. And then there's like a few that just you remember. You know? <laughs> there's a few that you remember. And, and, you know, it's funny. I, I have a problem that I kind of like everybody I deeply interview because I just appreciate everybody's story. Yeah. But I always have to come back and think. People ask me like, hey, five minutes after an interview, what do you think? What's your recommendation? I always say, I always punt and say, I need at least several hours or even a day. Because why? I need to step back and think about that person's capability set, that person's way of getting things done. And again, back to these potential markers I was talking about and think about the scorecard. Like, hey, at, at the end of the day, what needs to get done here? What are that? What's that individual's odds for success? So I say that because I kind of, this is, sounds corny as I'll get out, but I really do kind of think everybody I deep spend time with is pretty doggone awesome, especially if somebody like you has teed them up. But the candidates that really stick out are those that when I ask them a question like the, the kind of softball surface level questions of, hey, what accomplishments are you most proud of in your career? 
my disposition is to be pretty intensely curious after they list out accomplishment number one and ask how, tell me more. What would that versions of, what would that other person in the story's version of the story be if I were to talk to them tomorrow? Those who are take the time to reflect before they start answering the question and actually provide a compelling response. And by the way, also sometimes acknowledge they don't know, those tend to stick out. Those who just kind of repeat what are their talking points that they've kind of had scripted from prior interviews, those don't, those don't stick out. I always stress test myself to death on like, if you know, you know, uh, but those candidates where if I knew if, you know, where I do have that feeling, I go back and look and it's when I kind of drill down with them and understand they are very self-aware in understanding what it is they did to the, to affect the outcome of whatever their story was. Those aren't, those are your winners because that way, again, that gives me confidence in that agility piece. They understand what their formula for success is. A lot of leaders, and by the way, a lot of successful leaders are just kind of effective and they don't really, really fully appreciate what they're doing entirely and what's leading them to be effective. And there's that small select few that just, they really are incredibly self-aware in understanding how they're applying themselves, their skill sets and their, even their personality to be effective in different scenarios and how to adjust it. So I have to ask you, since I ask everybody this, do you have favorite interview questions that you ask? Or is it just about the probing, you know? Because um, I, I think about, you know, there, I always collect interview questions and I always yeah. give my clients like these big long lists of questions that they could ask. But then I think it's really about, like you were saying, the, the second level question, the double clicking yeah. that you do. But all that said, do you have a favorite kind of interview question that you that you think is is most revealing? I've got two. I do think the second second and third order questions have a ton of value, but two opening questions, if you will, not to a conversation necessarily, but really do lend themselves to excellent follow ups and uh, and insights. And I'm not going to claim original authorship on either one of these. Again, we, we live in a world of plagiarism left and right, and I love stealing ideas like from you. But one is, who do you want to be five years from now? Full stop. Oh, really, Brian? That's such a, oh, God. <laughs> but I want to know where they take it. Because sometimes people take it professional. People take it personal. Yeah. People take yeah. it skill set. People take it growth. People take it, re- people take it uh, I want to be resting. It's really telling from an overall hunger perspective and fit perspective. And then it just lends itself to just a, probably 10 follow-up questions for me. So again, it's an opening mm. question. It's not like that great of a probing question on its own. It's right. a corny question, but it's, it allows for amazing follow-ups. The second one, and, that, and again, this applies a little bit less to like more broad hunger. This is more capability testing, both from a functional lens and a kind of business savvy lens. If you were on a deserted island and I offered you this job, what information would you ask for me to learn uh, to basically help yourself ramp up and be effective as fast as possible. Mm. And for a marketer, boy, you can learn all kinds of great stuff about simply business savvy because yeah. there is, there's a whole range of things you could ask for. Some of them pretty doggone telling versus others as far as how, how much coaching will this individual need on the business side? Should this, should they step into the role? And by the way, the answer can be they need coaching on the business side. That's fine. But yeah. it's good to it's good to calibrate, especially if you're the CEO. That's an interesting one. I like that. I have to say, I like that better than the than I the first know, one. But I but know. you know, you're right. It's 
it's it's not so much the question you ask, but the the kinds of list, the kind of active listening that you're doing, and yeah. the and the probing afterwards, and and I think that's also a piece of like giving candidates a moment to kind of take a beat and formulate an answer. Big time. So I was actually just with a founder, a, a similar lens to this, and in, 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 in to better defend my first answer, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was with a found one of our founders yesterday, uh, actually talking about interviewing. And talking about scorecards and why scorecards are important. And we believe strongly in outcome-oriented scorecards so that you can go ask in the, and when I say outcome-oriented scorecards, we say like, hey, in two years from now, this role or this function will have delivered what? And right. then just go ask questions about that. And the founder asked me like, hey, wouldn't it make sense to share the scorecard with the candidates early on in the process? Of course, there's a case for that. I actually say no. Reason being is I don't want candidates acting too much in, in our conversation. I don't want them mm. performing too much and filling in blanks that they know I'm looking for. Mm. I want their organic selves as much as possible. And then it's on me to be really intentional about the follow-up questions I'm asking to find data in crude terms that satisfies some of those, um, some of that analogous data that, I, that would give me confidence that they would deliver on outcomes one, two, three, and four on the scorecard. and. If I spend too much time being too specific with a candidate on certain types of questions that are very, very job specific, then I'm, all I'm kind of doing is just constantly leading the witness. And I don't want to lead the mm -hmm. witness. I want, I want to, I want their natural energy and their natural skill set and their natural way of being to line up organically with what we need to get done, full mm -hmm. stop, as opposed mm -hmm. to them thinking they need to fit themselves into it. And if I ask yeah. two specific questions, it's just leading them into that. That's interesting because sometimes I wonder if that style means that you, the, the the candidates that are fastest on their feet, you know, get the job. I know like me, I like to think about things before I answer a question and I'm, I'm not going to be so articulate, like yep. right off the ball, <laughs> yep. right, right off the bat rather, you know, and uh, so there is that piece as as well, well. there is that piece. And that's also just my interview, by the way, the, I mean, right. we, we could get into the interview process, but my interview is I want to, I'm kind of thinking at in that dimension we just talked about, there are absolutely focused interviews. And as you well know with us, right. there's case studies and those things. And, and my vote is not the the only vote either, but it's, I, I do want to kind of, I, I want to understand how this person gets stuff done and yeah. and, uh, and, and, I, and really kind of think about how to best set them up for success should they step into that role and how much of a lift would that be? And that's where yeah. like, if it gets to be too big a lift, then it's time to start talking about, eh, maybe not the right candidate. Right. I have one final question for you, and that is, we all say we love a failure story, um, mm. but how would you feel if somebody had multiple failure stories and they had a lot of energy and they're really excited about what they potentially could do and they have reasonably good reasons for why things have not, you know, worked out, why they haven't been able to scale as fast as you would have liked in the past? It, like, can you can you talk about that? Like, how much failure is too much? to not be palatable anymore? Is there like some kind of sweet spot of failure? It's a good question. And to be sure, I think the the opposite version of that or a, another end of the spectrum is somebody who has never failed or at least claims to have never failed. And to be sure, there are there are individuals out there who have never failed. Those are actually, I, there's some risk with that because <laughs> again, uh, like you, you got to be able to take a punch mm -hmm. and, and kind of get back up off the mat, so to speak. Too much failure, sure. 
red, especially from the investor side of the house, or at least amongst my colleagues, yeah, red flags, red flags, red flags. You got to kind of find the truth. If somebody's failed multiple times, let's just, to your point, simplify it with that. It is not a showstopper at all, but I do want to dig in and understand that context very well. I do want to reference check that very well. And I want to understand what they learned from it. What do they do differently today as a result of the mistake they made in the past? Um, whether it be on a grand stage or a small stage, that ultimately is, again, let's go back to that self-awareness piece. If the individual has a, if the candidate is able to articulate very clearly, and sometimes it takes some reflection on the spot, not a pre-canned answer of, I've done, I did this reflection last year, here's what I came out with. But if they're able to articulate what it is they took from that situation and how they applied it differently the next time, because again, life is kind of an iterative learning process as it is, that gives me confidence that they can step into, again, like a, this situation, assuming the scorecard, the decent fit, and probably be successful and apply those lessons learned. But I do, no surprise, as an investor, we're going to reference check it. By the way, in full, uh, not, not through back channels, we prefer very much having the candidates connect us to the references directly because we're straight hmm. up. Here's who we're going to talk to. Well, this is awesome, Brian. Thank you so much for sharing all of this great insight. It's great to talk to somebody who kind of geeks out about, um, you know, interviewing and talent. And it's, it's, it's like even more detail than I do. So uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Erica. And it's debatable uh, that I'm more detail oriented than you. I've appreciated the partnership and the relationship so far and look forward to look forward to the next one. That was Brian West from Resurgence Technology Partners sharing what it's like behind the scenes when CEOs hire CMOs in PE-backed companies. Next time on The Get, I'll speak with Jay Gaines about how a CMO in a scale-up should take the reins for overall growth planning. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening to The Get. I'm your host, Erica Seidel. Hiring great marketing leaders is not easy. The Get is designed to inspire smart decisions around recruiting and leadership in B2B SaaS marketing. We explore the trends, tribulations, and triumphs of today's top marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. This season's theme is solving for the scale journey. If you liked this episode, please share it. For other insights on recruiting great marketing leaders, what I call the make money marketing leaders rather than the make it pretty ones, follow me on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for my newsletter at theconnectivegood.com. The Get is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions.